Welcome to this week's Audio Digest edition of the Herald Scotland, from Friday the 7th to Thursday the 13th of September 2018. Read by volunteers at Kuhn Review Print Speaking to the Blind at our studios in the Bishop Briggs Media Centre. The headlines in Part 1. Darren Little on bringing TV sitcom Benidorm to the stage. The V&D Dundee, light-filled interior contrasts with brutal exterior in a remarkable building. Health Secretary calls a halt to use of mesh implants in Scotland. Majority of expectant mothers in Scotland now overweight or obese. Charity Mind warns employees not speaking out about stress and anxiety issues. Legal highs may be more dangerous than ecstasy or cocaine, new research finds. Scottish teaching salaries fall behind international colleagues, says OECD. Hundreds of jobs at risk at Scott's tyre factory due to cheap foreign imports from Asia. SSE shares plunge on price cap profit warning. Share in Debenham's dive amid emergency turnaround speculation. The Herald Scotland, Thursday 13th September 2018. Darren Little on bringing TV sitcom Benidorm to the stage. By Neil Cooper, theatre critic. Darren Lytton was at the TV Choice Awards the night before we were due to talk about Benidorm Live, the writer's new musical stage adaptation of his hit package tour set sitcom, Benidorm. Lytton's show, which has run over ten series over the last decade, was named as Best Comedy. Given that the producers at ITV who made the show had not long cancelled Benidorm, there was no little irony in it scooping such a popular accolade. This was something Lytton made reference to in his acceptance speech. I said something about how any channel that can cancel a show that's still getting five and a half million viewers and which can still win an award has bigger balls than I'll ever have. Lytton says the morning after. It was a bit awkward at first, sitting at this glitzy do next to the people from ITV, who've just cancelled my show. But for a night out, it's one of the better awards ceremonies. Because it's not televised, it gets quite raucous. And when we won, it was nice to go out on a high. The award may have marked the end of Benidorm as a TV programme, but the eight-month tour of Benidorm Live that has just opened in Newcastle prior to arriving in Edinburgh next week should ensure that Luton's creation lives on a while yet. Featuring six original members of a 14-strong ensemble that filtered through the programme at various points over the last decade, Benidorm Live has been a long time coming. I think it was during series four or five that I had an idea of doing it on stage, says Lytton. There's a long tradition of putting sitcoms on stage. Heidi High, Are You Being Served and Allo Allo have all done it. So it seemed like the obvious thing to do, but it took so long for us to do anything. Then, when we went from half-hour to hour-long episodes, that meant it took about nine months to do a series, so there wasn't any time. Then we ended up doing a Benidorm sketch at the Royal Variety performance in 2017. It was just a small thing between acts on a bare stage, with no scenery or anything, but as soon as they played the theme music, the audience responded, and it went really well. That was probably when we realised that we could put the TV show on stage in some way, although at the time I didn't have a clue what way to go with. And when ITV were dragging their heels over what was going to happen next with Benidorm, that's when we started thinking about it seriously. 
Producers had long been hovering over a potential stage version of Benidorm once they got wind of Lytton's idea. The current show is a long way from some other suggestions that were bandied about. Some producers wanted to do it in arenas, says Lytton, but I didn't want to do that. It would have been easy to do that, but the atmosphere of places that that big aren't conducive to something off the telly. People have been watching Benidorm on telly for 10 years, but what's the point of doing it in an aircraft hangar and watching it on a screen again because you're so far back? The result so far for Benidorm Live has seen much of the programme's audience base lap up a story that picks up where the end of the final series of Benidorm left off. This sees a new company taking over the Solana all-inclusive hotel, where the show is set, closing it down for redevelopment and leaving staff and guests out in their ear. What has been nice, says Lytton, is that there's been appreciation of all the actors in the show and there's been as much love for the new characters who people don't know as there is for the ones people already know from the telly. There are a lot of characters in sitcoms you don't see, but who you're familiar with, like Captain Mannering's wife in Dad's Army or Arthur Daly's wife in Minder, so we've played with that. An old mate said something interesting. He said, don't take any offence, but I think it works better on stage than it does on telly. And I kind of know what he means. It's a big, broad thing and kind of lends itself to the stage. Lytton's career began as an actor, and he's made several cameos in Benidorm. He started writing by accident when his friend Catherine Tate, with whom he was at drama school, asked him to write for her eponymous sketch show. From this, comedy producer Geoffrey Perkins asked him to write his own show. I wrote a sketch about a couple of middle-aged swingers, he says, of characters eventually played by Janine Duvitsky, who appears in Benidorm Live, and the late Scottish actor and director Kenny Ireland. I initially set it in a suburban house, but thought that was a bit dull, so set it around a hotel pool, and gradually felt my way with different characters. Hopefully after ten years I know what I'm doing. The appeal of Benidorm clearly stems from Lytton's love of old school sitcoms that seem to have been all but killed off. When I was growing up, he said, there were things like Rising Damp and stuff like that, which were about normal working class people. But I remember at the time I was writing Benidorm, there were sitcoms like My Family and 2.4 Children, which were all terribly middle class and which I couldn't relate to. I'm from a working class background in Hull, and the one thing I could relate to was the royal family. Obviously, Benidorm turned out completely different. It sounds quite patronising talking about the working class, but we all go on holiday and we become different people for a week, and I think that's where the comedy stems from. With Benidorm a possible victim of Brexit and the fall of the pound in terms of production costs, Lytton is staying closer to home with a new series set to begin shooting next year. It's called Scarborough, he says, and it's obviously set there, but is nothing like Benidorm. Might Benidorm Live herald a U-turn by TV executives that might see Lytton's show return to the small screen? And if so, would he be interested? I would say no, Lytton ruminates. It seems these days that people leave shows, there's a big fuss about it, and then they go back. But I think it's better to look forward than look back. There's a new box set of DVDs coming out, packaged in a box the shape of a suitcase. And for me, that's ten years' work time to let it go. Benidorm Live, The Playhouse, Edinburgh, September 17th to 22nd, King's Theatre, Glasgow, February the 4th to 9th, 2019, His Majesty's Theatre, Aberdeen, March 4th to 9th, 2019. 
www.benedormonstage.com. The Herald Scotland, Thursday, 13th September 2018. The V&A Dundee, light-filled interior contrasts with brutal exterior in a remarkable building by Phil Miller. For a building with such an emphatic, event, even brutal exterior, the V&A Dundee has a surprisingly warm, intimate interior. Its main gathering space, an impressive bowl which appears smaller at the base than its roof, has its walls lined with warmly coloured, multi-angled slats of wood. One wall of slats has sloped like an internal hill. Will children be tempted to climb it? I suspect so. I'm told museum staff will be on hand to gently dissuade them. In this space there is the cafe and the shop, and much seating space, including a beautiful window out onto the tea. Once up the stairs, however, whose deep steps seem designed to slow you down, the museum expands in size, scale and light. One may justifiably ask, where was the £80.1 million spent? It is probably here, where the two massive halves of the building, which look a bit like a gigantic V with an A-shaped tunnel between them, twist, merge and open into the two exhibition spaces. Light floods in from several apertures in the striated exterior. The view west, through the rigging of the HMS Discovery, down the Tay and to the hills, is spectacular. The Scottish Design Gallery is a carefully curated mix of 300 objects from the V&D in London's collections. This is the permanent show, and although it will be rejigged fairly regularly, it will remain largely the same. There is a lot of Glasgow here, notably in the restored Macintosh Oak Room, which is lustrous and elegant, and in situ for at least another 25 years. There is also Basil Spence's designs for the Hutchison Town Flats in the Gorbals and a King's Theatre set. It is not a massive display, indeed perhaps modest, but it is beautifully presented. The larger exhibition space is, for its debut, presenting ocean liners, speed and style, which is opulent, extensive and, perhaps surprisingly, fascinating. It is just a taste of what the new building can do, both with the V&A shows and with its own. The key will be changing it enough to keep visitors coming back beyond the quality of the building itself, which gives Dundee something fiercely modern and special on its waterfront. Here at Q&A Review, we're always looking for more volunteer presenters, producers and sound technicians to volunteer with us and help produce our daily talking newspapers for the blind. If you're interested, please leave a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976 or email us at information at qandreview.com. The Herald Scotland, on Thursday the 13th of September 2018. News. Health Secretary calls a halt to use of mesh implants in Scotland. This article by Martin Williams, Senior News Reporter. Scotland's health boards have been told to immediately halt the use of mesh implants altogether in surgery. Health Secretary Jean Freeman made the announcement following the death of Eileen Baxter, 75, in August. Multiple organ failure was said to have led to Mrs Baxter's death, with sacrocolopexy mesh repair, an implant to fix a pelvic organ prolapse noted as an underlying cause. Her son, Mark, 52, has called for the products to be completely banned. Ms Freeman said NHS boards had been told to halt the use of mesh in cases of pelvic organ prolapse and stress urinary incontinence. This will continue until a new restricted-use protocol is drawn up. 
Other mesh procedures, such as transabdominal mesh, will be kept under active review and will also be subject to high vigilance procedures. She also praised the bravery of women who have come forward to share their problems following vaginal mesh surgery. Healthcare Improvement Scotland has established a group to oversee any continued use of the treatment. And Ms Freeman said the Chief Medical Officer has continued to keep the issue under review and is listening to the women who have been affected of this. She said, I have today asked the Chief Medical Officer to instruct health boards to immediately halt the use of transvaginal mesh altogether in cases of both pelvic organ prolapse and stress urinary incontinence, pending the implementation of a new restricted use protocol that will ensure procedures are carried out only in the most exceptional circumstances and subject to a robust process of approval and fully informed consent. The instruction to halt is, I believe, a proportionate measure, while a rigorous, high-vigilance, restricted-use protocol for any future practice is developed and put in place. The lifting of this halt in use can only be considered once there is confidence that there is sufficient evidence that the protocol can only be triggered in only the most limited of circumstances, informed by any new evidence and the forthcoming NICE guidance, which is expected in spring next year on the management of pelvic organ prolapse and stress urinary incontinence. Holyrood's Public Petitions Committee had called for the use of mesh implants to stop, citing serious concerns over an independent review into their use. That review concluded the procedure, used in the treatment of pelvic organ prolapse, POP, and stress urinary incontinence, SUI, must not be offered routinely to women with pelvic organ prolapse. The review was announced by the Scottish Government in 2014, with health boards requested to stop the procedure until its conclusion. It remains under suspension in NHS Scotland, except in exceptional circumstances. The review's final report was branded a whitewash by some women who have suffered painful and debilitating complications from MESH, including campaigners Elaine Holmes and Olive McElroy. Professor Alison Britton has been commissioned to conduct a review of the review, which is due to report later this year. Mrs Baxter from Lone Head died in hospital in Edinburgh last month. She underwent MESH surgery five years ago. Her death certificate lists this as an antecedent cause of death that caused chronic pelvic inflammation and possible sepsis, leading to anterior rectal perforation and finally the multiple organ failure that ultimately resulted in her death. Labour MSP Neil Finlay said that he understood it was the first time MESH had been specifically cited as an underlying cause of death in Scotland. Hundreds of women in Scotland have suffered painful and debilitating complications from being given mesh implants, including infections, bleeding and even paralysis. The use of mesh implants in NHS Scotland was suspended four years ago in all but exceptional circumstances. But the following year it was found that several health boards were still carrying out the operations. Critics say that hundreds have been performed since then. This article was by Martin Williams, Senior News Reporter. From the Herald, 12th of September 2018, from the news section, majority of expectant mothers in Scotland now overweight or obese. And that's by Helen McArdle. More than half of mothers in Scotland are overweight or obese for the first time, and the number giving birth aged over 45 is at a record high. A report on maternity care in Scotland warns that the increase in older and overweight mothers who are at greater risk of complications during pregnancy and birth is piling pressure on midwives at a time when vacancies have soared. 
While the Royal College of Midwives, RCM, stressed that the staffing situation is much better compared to England and welcomed the Scottish Government's investment in training new midwives, it flagged concerns over the shortages in the north of Scotland and the threat posed by a sudden exodus of midwives to retirement, with 40% of the workforce north of the border now aged over 50. This compares to 32% in England. The State of Maternity Services report found that 51% of pregnant women in Scotland in 2017 were obese or overweight, the first time the proportion has exceeded 50%. This puts them at a greater risk of gestational diabetes, high blood pressure and premature birth. Meanwhile, a total of 158 babies were born to women aged over 45 last year, the highest number to date and up from 29 in 2000. The number of births to women aged 40 to 44 has increased 68% over the same period. On average, older mothers require more care and support during pregnancy and birth as they are more likely to have complex medical conditions or be giving birth to twins and triplets on account of IVF. The report states that the demographic trends have contributed to an increased workloads for midwives despite falling birth rates. At the same time, the vacancy for midwives has increased from 1.3% in September 2013 to 5% in March 2018 equivalent to 127 empty posts. Recruitment problems are toughest in Grampian, Highland and the Western Isles. Looming retirements were also highlighted, particularly in the context of the redesign of Scotland's maternity services following the Best Start review, which OSC mothers allocated a named midwife for all their pregnancy, labour and postnatal care. It could see a shift away from fixed shifts on to an on-call model that would see midwives responding whenever a woman on their caseload went into labour. The report states, This model of care has strong evidence of benefits for women, families and, potentially, for midwives. However, the introduction of such a significantly different way of working also brings with it uncertainties for the future workforce. Some older midwives may choose to retire rather than take on a new way of working and it is also not yet clear whether the new model of care will require more midwives. The impact of the implementation of the Best Start Review recommendations on the workforce will start to be seen over the next one to two years. However, the, the report praised the Scottish Government for maintaining bursaries and free tuition for student midwives at a time when they have been axed in England and fees imposed for the first time. The student midwife intake was also very significantly increased, meaning there will be 230 starting the three-year training courses in Scotland this year, compared to 178 in 2016. Mary Ross Davy. RCM Director for Scotland said there are some great things happening in our maternity services in Scotland 
not least the very ambitious Best Start Maternity Programme. The Scottish Government has also delivered real increases in the number of student midwives, which we welcome. However, pressures on our midwives are increasing, the care needs of the women in our care are rising, while the number of unfilled midwifery posts is also rising. I am still concerned about the age profile of our midwifery workforce, although it is encouraging to see the green shoots of higher numbers of young midwives joining our service. Health Secretary Jean Freeman said, While there has been an increase of 5.7% in the number of qualified nurses and midwives under this government, we are determined to go further to ensure that we have a sustainable midwifery workforce long into the future. That's why we are investing our Return to Practice programme, where 55 former midwives return to service and a shortened midwifery course in the north of Scotland to meet the specific recruitment challenges in that region. We've also recommended an increase in midwifery student intakes. And that was by health correspondent Helen McArdle. This is an article from the Herald, 11th of September 2018, written by Helen McCardy. Charity Mind warns employees not speaking out about stress and anxiety issues. As many as one in four workers in the UK are struggling in silence with mental health difficulties such as stress and anxiety, a charity has warned. A survey of more than 44,000 employees by mental health campaigners, Mind, showed that only half of 48% who had experienced poor mental health had talked to their employer about it. Mind said the findings suggest as many as one in four workers is struggling in silence with problems such as anxiety, low mood and stress. It comes as the Duke of Cambridge prepares and launch a free online initiative today for employers and employees to collect information, advice, resources and training that workplaces can use to improve well-being. Prince William will be joined by Antonio Horato Horizo, Chief Executive of Lloyds Banking Group, who said Lloyds will be making a substantial use of mental health work at Work Gateway. It concedes with Suicide Prevention Week and comes after Scotland's top civil servant Leslie Evans was praised for speaking out about her own experience of mental health problems. Callum Irvin, Director of Scotch Charity CME, said... There is a significant problem of people in Scotland being able to speak openly about their mental health at work, for fear of what the impact might be. We want organisations to create a culture that is open in talking about mental health and where the discriminatory behaviour is challenged. So we're supporting the launch of a mental health at work gateway as it contains resources from organisations across the UK, including CME and SAMH in Scotland, to help both employers and employees to improve workplace mental health and tackle stigma. To reduce stigma, we all need to be comfortable asking each other, are you OK, and open up conversations about how we really feel. It could change someone's life. Previous research by MIND revealed that one in three employees did not know where to look for guidance on mental health issues. MIND Chief Executive Paul Farmer said, We know that employers want to do more and are starting to see mental health as a priority, but often don't know where to start. 
for new online mental health at Work Gateway will change that. This is an article from health correspondent Helen McCaldy. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know someone who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet audio player, where our podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF of a Sonata internet radio, please contact your local agent. Please note you will need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player, ask for Q and Review. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland. On Thursday, the 13th of September 2018. News. Legal highs may be more dangerous than ecstasy or cocaine, new research finds. This article by Emily Combat and Helen McArdle. Drug users may be at greater risk of harm from abusing so-called legal highs than they are from cannabis, cocaine or ecstasy, according to new research. Scientists from the UK, Italy and the USA have conducted some of the first research into the physiological and psychological effects of novel psychoactive substances, NPS, such as spice, a cannabis substitute which burst onto the UK drug scene around eight years ago. They found that many of them have worse health impacts than their more well-known counterparts, such as cannabis, cocaine and ecstasy. Professor Colin Davidson, who's leading the research at the University of Central Lancashire, said, We've found that most legal highs examined from a variety of different drug groups have potentially dangerous side effects, and maybe even more dangerous drugs than those which they've been designed to replicate. This questions our drug policies, because by banning all psychoactive drugs, we've created a legal high scene where we have little understanding of how to treat users and the adverse effects are not well understood. In addition, users will have little understanding of how to use the drugs safely. The team's findings have been presented at the British Science Festival, which is taking place in Hull this week. NPS have rapidly risen in popularity, and despite the misleading Legal High's nickname, they are neither safe nor legal, with most now banned under the Misuse of Drugs Act or Psychoactive Substances Act. However, they remain widely and cheaply available on the internet. Professor Davidson added, If we are to medically treat these users to the best of our ability, then we need to know the pharmacological effects of these drugs. If we can determine how they work, then we have a better chance to treat abusers who often turn up in A&E. We can also use this evidence base to prioritise educational and legal resources. Polydrug use makes the study of the short and long-term effects of NPS in humans difficult. With the scientific literature focusing mostly on more traditional drugs of abuse, the study of these substances and their health effect is a neglected area of research. Dr Hazel Torrance, head of the Forensic Toxicology Service at Glasgow University's School of Medicine, Dentistry and Nursing, said... We have sporadic clusters of problems with NPS drugs, which can have major implications in terms of harms, both short and long term, and deaths. But the classic drugs of abuse are still the ones causing most damage to society. The Psychoactive Substances Act had a positive effect on the availability of NPS on the high street and on the internet, but the illicit drug market has not reduced. Some might say the illicit drug market actually increased the purity of drugs like cocaine and ecstasy tablets to compete against the NPS. 
The other NPS, which are of major concern, are synthetic cannabinoids, which seem much stronger in their effect than cannabis, THC, and are a particular problem in prisons. Whilst we've not had a huge number of fatalities, there is a big concern about the mental health implications of using these drugs, put together in a prison setting, and there are big concerns for the individual's safety. NPS have had a substantial effect on the Scottish drug scene. However, there has been a sharp reduction in the use of NPS and related hospital admissions since the law changed in 2016. The National Drug-Related Deaths Database for Scotland highlights, meanwhile, that drug-related deaths are on the rise since 2015, with heroin, methadone and increasing polydrug use most often involved. Dr Torrance added, The one NPS potentially having some kind of impact is etizolam, a benzodiazepine like diazepam. Scotland has an unusual relationship with benzodiazepines, which is different to the rest of the UK. In the last few years, diazepam has been replaced by etizolam in drug-related deaths. However, there has never been a death with only etizolam. All the deaths have multiple drugs, and the number of drugs included in each case is increasing. This article was by Emily Combat and Helen McArdle. The Herald Scotland News Recorded on the 11th of September 2018 Scottish teaching salaries fall behind international colleagues, says OECD. By Andrew Denham The salaries of Scottish teachers have declined in comparison to their international colleagues, according to new figures. A major report on education systems around the world found the value of pay for secondary staff in Scotland has declined by 5% since 2005. The report by the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, said, In contrast to the general trend across OECD countries, Teachers' statutory salaries in England and Scotland fell in real terms between 2005 and 2017, by around 10% in England and about 5% in Scotland. The OECD figures show an average salary in primary schools around the developed world are £42,000, while teachers in secondary get an average of £45,000. In Scotland, teachers at the top of the scale in both primary and secondary are paid £36,000. £500. The figures come as teaching unions threaten strike action in a battle to secure a pay rise of 10%. Teachers have been offered 3%, although a new offer would see those at the bottom and top of the pay scales receive more. Union leaders argue teachers' pay has decreased significantly since the Macron Agreement of 2001, which followed an independent committee of inquiry, which reviewed the profession's pay and conditions. The OECD report also concluded that the pay of Scottish teachers is relatively low when compared to other graduate professions. Larry Flanagan, General Secretary of the Educational Institute of Scotland, teaching union, said, The international comparisons confirmed Scotland's teachers worked some of the longest hours of any OECD country, with a high percentage of time spent in front of the class. Scottish teachers spend 860 hours a year teaching in secondary school, compared to an OECD average of 700 hours. Mr Flanagan said, Coupled with the country's continuing slide down international comparisons on pay, where Scotland's teachers have endured a real-terms pay cut over the past decade, this highlights the damaging combination of soaring workload and declining pay facing Scotland's teachers. This has created a situation where teaching is no longer a desirable career for many graduates, with serious implications for teacher recruitment and retention, 
and for education provision in many parts of the country. By Andrew Denholm. Remember, this programme is just a fraction of what we produce. You can access more daily content online via our website, qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts. For free daily podcasts of the Evening Times and Herald Scotland newspapers, weekly digests of the National Newspaper and weekly full readings of Inside Soap magazine. Now, back to the main programme. This is an article from the Herald, 11th of September 2018, written by Alan Simpson. Hundreds of jobs at risk at Scott's Tyre Factory due to cheap foreign imports from Asia. Hundreds of Scottish jobs are at risk at McKellen Tyre Factory after a fall in global demand in a move which comes just a year after it received £4.5 million in public cash to fund an expansion programme. The French headquartered group said the market had also been flooded by cheaper products from Asia. McKellen stressed it was working to meet these market challenges, but management at the Dundee site have told the 850-strong workforce they could face job cuts or changes to shift patterns or combination of both as a result of a downturn. The site is now slated to produce a maximum of 5.4 million tyres per annum over the next three years, a figure which falls roughly 25% short of a facility's 7 million plus peak production capacity. A McKeelan statement said, McKeelan Dundee continues to face extremely challenging trading conditions, primarily due to the influx of cheap tyres from Asia and falling demand for premium tyres in small and diminutions. Production for the next three years is forecast to be a maximum of 5.4 million tyres a year, which is significantly below capacity. We are working with employees, unions and the McKeelan Group to meet these market challenges. We will explore all options to maximise the efficiency of the plant and those options could include restructuring work patterns and reducing headcount. McKinnon Dundee continues to appreciate the hard work and flexibility of its employees and we will update them before the end of the year. Last year, Scottish Enterprise allocated £4.5 million into the production machinery in addition to the £12 million investment by McKinnon to support increased demand for larger tyres in the Dundee factory last year. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon announced the funds would pay for a series of improvements at the site, including bringing in new technology aimed at bringing about a substantial drop in CO2 emissions. The funding package was revealed by First Minister Nicola Sturgeon as she visited a factory which employs 850 workers. Union leaders reacted with dismay at the announcement, which they blamed on an influx of cheap foreign imports from Asia into the European market and falling demand for premium tyres in smaller dimensions. Unite, the union, have been working with trade union partners of the European Works Council, EWC, in discussion with the company to consider a series of measures to address the issue of cheap imports from Europe from Asia. Unite recently launched its Steel Well Clear campaign, which is putting pressure on the UK government to take action to ensure that mislabeled inferior Asian tyres are no longer being dumped on the UK market. 
We also want drivers to be better educated about the potential dangers of mislabeling and using inferior tyres. Under provisional regulations published by the EU, inferior quality tyres made in China for use on buses and lorries will be subject to anti-dumping duties of between 29% and 69%. Senior stop steward at Mechelen Dundee, Mark Jackson, said, Unite the Union have been aware over the last few months of a challenging market situation in close dialogue with our European partners. The reduction in the production will impact the Dundee site more than any other site within the Mechelen Group as we manufacture small tyred emissions. Unite have always worked together with Mechelen through difficult periods and we will continue to do so. We understand that is one of the most challenging periods we have faced and one of the main reasons for the announcement is the influx of cheap imports from Asia. At this moment in time, our members can be assured that we will be looking to protect their terms and conditions and to maximise jobs on the site. The union and the company are working hard to deal with these issues and to give the factory the best opportunity going forward and to be as competitive as possible. This is an article from Alan Simpson. The Herald Scotland, Thursday, 13 September 2018. SSE Shares Plunge on Price Cap Profit Warning by Mark Williamson Shares in Scottish hydroelectric owner SSE have plunged around 8% after the Per firm warned the price cap and tariffs would hit profits following a disappointing and regrettable performance in the first five months. The Perth-based utility said the price cap that Ofgem has proposed to implement from 1st January will result in annual profits for the division that serves households being significantly lower than expected at the start of the financial year. Ofgem last week said it would impose a £1,136 cap on the annual bills of dual fuel customers, paying by direct debits, following repeated complaints about the prices charged by the big six energy firms. The introduction of the cap will pose fresh challenges for SSE following a difficult first half. SSE said profits for the six months to September 30th would be around half the level achieved last time, with warm summer weather and increased gas prices taking a heavy toll on the business. The sunny summer resulted in lower than expected output from the wind farms and hydro plants operated by SSE's core renewable business. The group's customers used less energy. SSE said persistently high gas prices had continued to result in a higher cost of energy than expected. Adjusted operating profit for the first five months of the financial year has therefore been negatively affected by around £190 million, compared with plan, it told investors. The unscheduled update came weeks after SSE warned that weather and gas price effects had left first quarter profits £80 million below forecast. SSE's financial performance in the first five months has been disappointing and regrettable, said Mr Phillips Davis yesterday. However, he said the underlying quality of SSE's businesses remains strong, with the networks and renewables operations forming the core of what will be an infrastructure focus group in the years ahead. Mr Phillips Davis emphasised SSE still expects to deliver the five-year dividend plan set out in May, helped by the reshaping of the group. SSE is to quit the retail business. The company plans to merge its retail arm with NPower through a deal that will result in the big six energy retailers that dominate the household market being reduced to five. 
Unions and consumer groups have expressed concern about the impact on gas and electricity prices and on jobs. However, the Competitions and Markets Authority last month signalled it would clear the deal. It has concluded that SSE and NPOWER do not compete closely on the kind of standard variable tariffs that have stirred controversy. Shareholders in SSE will own 65.6% of the new retail business created by the merger, which is expected to complete by March 31st. SSE continues to expect to recommend a full-year dividend of 97.5 pence per share for 2018-19. Pledging to make good its promise on the dividend will sugar the pill of another profit warning, but with earnings falling and investment requirements stretching well into the billions, SSE can ill afford more slip-ups, said George Salmon, equity analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne. SSE's transmission networks business appears to have been its best performing operation in the year to date. The division is expected to deliver a mid-single-digit increase in adjusted operating profit for the full year. The energy portfolio management arm, which ensures SSE has the supplies needed to meet customer demand, is expected to lose £300 million this year. SSE achieved £586.2 million adjusted operating profit in the first half of last year, down 8% on the same period in the preceding year. In July, SSE said total energy customer numbers for Great Britain and Ireland stood at 7.45 million at June 30th, compared with 7.77 million on June 30th last year. Shares in SSE closed down 103.5 pence at 1,147 pence. This is an article from the Herald, 11th of September 2018. Written by Deputy Business Editor Scott Wright. Share in Debenhams Dive amid emergency turnaround speculation. Shares in department store chain Debenhams have plunged more than 10% amid speculation that it has appointed advisers to draw up emergency turnaround plans for the alien retailer. As retailers continue to battle tough trading conditions on the high street, it was reported on Sunday that the struggling chain has drafted an expert as key PMG to advise on its options. One route reported to be under consideration was for company to enter into a company voluntary arrangement, CVA, a controversial mechanism which some high street retailers have pushed in recent months to shut underperforming stores and regenerate terms of landlords. House of Fraser had agreed a CVA with its landlord prior before it went into administration and was sold to Mike Ashley Sports Direct in a pre-packed deal last month. New Look, Carpetright and Mothercare are among other retailers which have struck CVAs in recent months, paving free way for hundreds of store closures and thousands of redundancies. CVA have angered some property owners because they feel the mechanism leave landlords out of pocket. Debenhams responded to the speculation by releasing a statement to the stock market yesterday morning which made no direct reference to KPMG. Chairman Sir Ian Cheshire said, as we stated in June, the board continues to work with its advisers on long-term options, which include strengthening our balance street and reviewing non-core assessments. This activity is in order to maximise shareholders and pocket other stakeholders, including our employees. 
Debenhams yesterday declared its expectation of achieving a pre-exceptional pre-tax profit of €33 million for the full year, which is said was in line with current consensus of between €31 million and €36.5 million. It reiterated further to its trading update in June that it anticipates ending a year with net debt zero around €320 million, in line with guidance and with headroom on its €520 million medium-term facilities. The company added that it has continued to strengthen its financial position, including by increasing headroom on its fixed-charge convent, as announced on August 1st. It said this would maximise its flexibility and volatile market conditions. Debenhams also noted that the start of the autumn season had been encouraging declaring that any sustained upturn would result in a rebound in our profit performance. Chief Executive Sergio Butcher said the market environment remains challenging and underlying trends deteriorate through the summer months. Nevertheless, for product and format improvements, we have tested our gaining traction and we are ready to scale up some of our static activity ahead of peak. Having put in place a leaner operational structure and strong leadership team and taken action to strengthen our financial position, we are well equipped to navigate these market conditions and take advantage of any trading opportunities that emerge. The speculation centering on Debenhams follows a major cost cut and drive carried out by the retailer in response to its faltering performance launched in January. Three structures saw the firm slash 320 store management walls in February as it targets 10 million of cost savings this year and 20 million extra annually. A further 90 walls, which time focused on its fashion and home departments, were axed in August, which came after Debenhams had issued its first profit warning this year in June. The company has been linked with a takeover bid from shareholder Mike Ashley. KPMG said it was making no comment at its time. Shares closed down 1.3 at 11.5 p.m. This is an article from Deputy Business Editor Scott Wright. That's the end of part one. After the break, we'll be coming back with more great articles from the Herald Scotland. This is a message from the NFB UK, the National Federation of the Blind of the United Kingdom. What is NFB UK? The National Federation of the Blind of the United Kingdom, NFB UK, is a self-help organisation of blind, partially sighted and deaf-blind people helping each other to help ourselves. It's an independent, non-political charity that campaigns for greater rights, citizenship and independent living. How does NFB UK work? We have a network of branches around the country where members and supporters can meet locally. The branches keep our members in touch with their local community and represent their views to local and national authorities and society in general. We provide information for our members in Braille, large print, audio and electronic formats. We work with local and national organisations to improve the quality of life for all blind, partially sighted, deaf-blind people and those whose sight impairment is part of multidisability. NFB UK campaigns to defend essential benefits and social care services and seeks wider provision of these services and equipment to help us lead independent lives. We have local branches around the country and are aiming to open new branches in more areas. What are the benefits of joining NFB UK? You meet other blind, partially sighted and deafblind people with an interest in peer support, campaigning and making a difference. 
Members decide and shape which issues and campaigns to focus on, and you decide how you want to work on campaigns. It's free to join this year. You will benefit from our special offer of one year's free membership. You can receive regular updates and share information through newsletter, e-group and our audio magazine for members. Founded in 1947, we have played a leading role in Articles for the Blind postal concessions, the retention of different banknote sizes according to denomination and tactile street paving. Current Issues We are currently active in issues around shared spaces and the built environment, disabled students' allowance, social care and rehabilitation, and the NHS and accessible information standards. Join us. If you are blind, partially sighted or deafblind, become a full member. We welcome sighted people to join as associate members. Any donation you can make will assist us to further our campaigning. For more information, visit www.nfbuk.org. Contact us via post, NFBUK, Sir John Wilson House, 215 Kirkgate, Wakefield, West Yorkshire, WF1, 1JG. That's Whiskey Foxtrot 1, 1 Juliet Golf. Telephone us, 01924 291 313 or email admin at nfbuk.org also on twitter and facebook at nfbuk now back to the main program welcome back the headlines in part two Little wonder Brexit concerns so many Scots. The Herald View. The nation in a state of discontent. The Diary. Freshers' Week and Toilet Syndrome. New Scots Benefits Agency has presence in just two councils. Vince Cable's long goodbye as Lib Dem leader, as Joe Swinson plays down leadership ambition, for now. Tories have stripped workplace rights back to the days of 1930s, Depression, says John McDonnell. Stuart Fisher, I am delighted the SFA are staying at Hamden, but I don't expect the government to foot the upgrade bill. Justin Rose and Georgia Hall continue to scale the heights. McLeish gets real for Albania. Scott's Boys Club left stunned by six-figure windfall after ex-player's multi-million pound Premier League move. The Herald, Monday, September the 10th. Little wonder Brexit concerns so many Scots. This is the Herald's opinion piece. Given the higher Remain vote here, it is perhaps unsurprising that a new Ipsos Mori poll finds Scots more concerned about Brexit than their counterparts elsewhere in the UK. All the same, It reflects the fact that, in the 27 months since the EU referendum, little has been done to allay their concerns. Indeed, with the UK's simultaneously proud and fearful exit barely 200 days away, a sense of near panic can sometimes be discerned. What will happen to our health and care services, our flow of migrant workers, our ageing population. 
These concerns are not unconnected. In the same survey, Scots were nearly twice as worried about ageing and the future of social care. They were less concerned than the rest of the UK about immigration. The latter attitude may reflect the fact that we have less immigration here than do other parts of the UK. At the same time, as things stand, our political culture is probably more welcoming to immigrants and, dare we say it, across the board, our indigenous press is less rabid on the subject. But we also realise that we need foreign workers. Our care services, for example, rely heavily on migrant labour. They do the low-paid and often unpleasant jobs that workers here may avoid. We wish to see that pay increased. Whether we can do anything about the unpleasantness is another matter. At any rate, it is unpleasant to contemplate whether in future we can look after our elderly, that is to say ourselves in later days. More broadly, in health terms, the possibility of a no-deal Brexit has raised concerns about the supply of medicines. Under pressure from the Brexit Health Alliance, the UK government has lately made reassuring noises about working with pharmaceutical companies to ensure hospitals, GPs, pharmacies and patients won't have to stockpile medicines. That is welcome, but fears remain, and these without any crass allusions to the presence or otherwise of suicide vests. Fear and concerns among sections of the UK populace are not signs of good government. The minimum requirement of decent administration is a healthy, happy and optimistic population. Brexit has put much of that at risk. It may well be that it works out fine. We would not join those hoping for disaster to prove a point. But we cannot help feeling that Scotland's needs and desires regarding Europe are in many ways different from those in other parts of the UK. It doesn't make us no better or nicer, just different. We feel we need Europe and that Europe benefits from having us. With such attitudes and our different circumstances disregarded, it is little wonder that so many Scots are concerned. The Herald Scotland On Wednesday, the 12th of September 2018 Opinion The Herald View the nation in a state of discontent. You don't need an advanced knowledge of the disposition and arrangement of tea leaves to fear tumultuous times are coming. Consider disquieting remarks made yesterday from opposite sides of the UK political divide. Tory Brexiteer and putative Prime Minister Boris Johnson assured us there's nothing to fear from a no-deal Brexit. It was the type of assurance and source that will tempt thoughtful people to start stockpiling food and medicines. On land, sea and air, if we can put it in terms that might faintly echo Mr Johnson's hero, Churchill, problems mounted. Food exports threatened by a lack of vets. No EU officials allowed at British ports serving Ireland. Pilots' licences having to be reissued at a cost of millions. 
Meanwhile, Labour Shadow Chancellor and aspiring government minister John McDonnell averred he'd been down on the picket line with rail workers should they choose to form such ancient industrial configurations in an impending winter of discontent. Mr McDonnell is so disposed because he predicts chaos in the next six months, with the Tory government tearing itself apart over Brexit. He believes in elections in the offing and is preparing accordingly, with Labour's most left-wing manifesto in decades. At the TUC Congress in Manchester, Mr McDonnell outlined plans for workers' representation on boards, dividends shared with staff, and full employee rights for those toiling in the gig economy. The insecurity and bullying associated with the latter have led to a sympathy with the workers that's been absent for some time, though it's fair to say that the gig economy suits some, and more generally to point out that unemployment is low. However, Mr McDonnell is right to say that the balance has shifted away from workers. Railway employees are deeply angry at how they've been treated, he says. More generally, workplace insecurity is at its worst since the 1930s, he says. His critics say a prospectus from the 1980s isn't the answer. As back then, Benite-style deselection plans could also split the party, leaving it little chance of governing the country if it can't govern itself. The left-wing prospectus could play well in Scotland, but Mr Macdonald's already ruled out a progressive coalition with the SNP, possibly to the relief of the latter. It is progressive, but only up to a point, apart from which all of this is predicated on progressive unity breaking out in the Labour Party itself, a condition never likely to last long at the best of times. Europe is in crisis. The Tory government is in chaos. The Labour opposition is split on several issues. Industrial discontent is being fermented, and as the tea leaves form into a question mark, we all wonder where the country is going. This was The Herald View. The Herald Scotland, Thursday, 13 September 2018. The Diary, Freshers' Week and Toilette Syndrome, by Ken Smith. Time for bed. We asked for your Freshers' Week stories, and Dr Duncan Sim in Hindland tells us, like many others of my age, I was the first generation to go to university and was convinced everyone would be far brainier than me. I also found the organised chaos of Freshers' Week pretty overwhelming, so I found a quiet corner of the lounge in the student union to read the paper for a few minutes. Suddenly the door burst open, dozens of students poured in, switched the television on and began to watch the magic roundabout. That was the point when I realised that I was going to survive university. Road to Dundee. The new V&D Design Museum opens in Dundee this week and travel guide Lonely Planet says the city is now a must-visit destination. It was not always the case. We remember years ago our old chum, motoring writer Alan Douglas, telling us he had picked up an S-Type Jaguar with an electronic navigation system, which included a points of interest option. As he was heading towards his native Dundee, Alan programmed the system for the jewel of the tea. It flickered for a moment and then came up with the answer that there were no points of interest in Dundee. Mince. Talking of Dundonians, broadcaster Eddie Mayer had started his new job with radio station LBC. We don't want to check with our old colleague Jackie Bird in case she denies it, but we were once told that when Eddie worked on Reporting Scotland, he knew that co-host Jackie was to read out a story about a chap appearing in court, accused of hitting old firm footballer Mo Johnson in the face with a pie. As we heard it, Eddie has secretly heated a pie in the newsroom microwave and dumped it on Jackie's lap while she read out the story, in the hope of provoking a reaction. Like the trooper she is, Jackie carried on regardless. Bit of a card. 
Growing old continued, says Ron Beaton in Dunblane. I attempted to open a cardboard container with my bare hands, but with no success. Next, I tried scissors, still no joy. Last attempt was to attack with a knife, resulting in the container bursting open, spilling its contents over the floor. Bending down to pick up the container, I spot the words, Open Other End. Grey hair does not suggest wisdom. What's it called? The Herald's obituary of sultry actress Fenella Fielding mentioned her appearing in the bonkers film financed by Cumbernauld Development Corporation in the 70s, Cumbernauld Hit, in which she played a Bond-like villain. Interviewed years later by the Herald, she recalled, A new Cumbernauld was a new town and the film was to publicise it in a jeu d'esprit. And at the time, it was quite experimental. I was there for about two weeks, and I think Cumbernauld was possibly rather good. Our interviewer asked if she'd ever been back to Cumbernauld since then and recorded. No, she says a little sheepishly. Trolleyed. Kenny Reid was in the lift at Edinburgh Royal Infirmary when a member of staff pushing a patient on a trolley was unable to get in the lift, as it was crowded, and decided to get another one. As the lift ascended, a little boy commented on the trolley and his grandmother angrily replied it was a lady, not a carcass. Says Kenny, the boy's mother diffused matters by saying he said it was maybe a car crash. I wasn't sure if my laughter was appreciated. Between the covers... The latest attack on President Donald Trump is the new book by respected investigative journalist Bob Woodward, entitled Fear, which categorises the chaos in the White House. However, as one American put it, criticising Trump in a book is just unfair. It's like criticising the Amish on television. Bored. Dear oh dear, reader Dave Carson emails, there's currently a tenement close in Dumbarton with four estate agent signs outside the entrance door. It's the worst case of Toilette syndrome I've ever seen. Here at q and Review, we're always looking for more volunteer presenters, producers and sound technicians to volunteer with us and help produce our daily talking newspapers for the blind. If you're interested, please leave a message on our answering service at 0141-772-3976 or email us at information at qandreview.com. This is an article from The Herald, 11th of September 2018, written by Tom Gordon. New Scots Benefits Agency has presence in just two councils. Scotland's new £300 million Social Security Agency has a presence in just two of the country's 32 councils as it goes live, it has emerged. The SNP government signed a deal with the council group Cosler last December to co-locate face-to-face customer services for Social Security Scotland in council buildings. In April, the Social Security Minister Jane Freeman added... The new Social Security Scotland service will have a presence in every local authority area. However, despite the new agency due to deliver its first benefit this week, it has offices in just two councils, its HQ in Dundee and an administrative office in Glasgow. The figures emerged in a parliamentary written answer from Social Security Secretary Sirley Anne Somerville. She said... Social Security Scotland have been meeting regularly with the council representatives to identify suitable opportunities for co-location ahead of local delivery services becoming fully operational. To date, offices in two local authority areas have been acquired. 
These being the interim headquarters for Social Security Scotland in Dundee and an interim administrative office in Glasgow. Ministers have not published a firm timetable for opening high street offices, but are pleased to roll out of a new developed benefits, meaning they're vital by next summer. However, the Scottish Tories claimed the government was falling behind on a key pledge. Tory MSP Michael Ballantyne said, After years and years of complaining from the sidelines about welfare reform, the SNP is about to discover just how difficult it is to create a fair and affordable social security system. Earlier this year, it stated every local authority area would have a local presence when it comes to a new social security powers, yet just two of Scotland's 32 countries have this. The SNP's narrative on much-needed welfare reform may have served a certain political purpose for the nationalists, but now ministers have to get on with delivering these payments, and it appears it has got off to a poor start. Social Security Scotland is due to start its work delivering benefits today, with letters going around to 75,000 telling them of a new automatic benefit worth £221 million. The twice yearly careers allowance supplement, which is worth an extra £8.50 a week, 13%, on top of UK maximum of £64.60, will be backdated to April. The supplement will be worth more than £30 million a year to careers in receipt of DWP's carers allowance on a qualifying date of April 16th. The vast majority of payments are due to be made this month, with the rest in October. Miss Somerville said, from this week, carers across Scotland start getting more money in their pockets as the first payments from Social Security Scotland Carers Allowance Supplement start to be paid. Over the course of this month, in excess of 75,000 carers will receive the first additional payment to Carers Allowance of £221 to be followed by another payment in December and every six months thereafter. This is an increase of 30% and an investment of over £30 million in our carers. We will start paying our second benefit, Best Start Grant, to low-income families by Christmas. Making these payments represents a historic moment, launching a new public service that will deliver a social security system that treats people with dignity, fairness and respect. We have 100 new recruits in our Dundee headquarters working on the delivery of this benefit, including taking calls on our free phone helpline, for anyone who would like additional information or support. This new public service will deliver a further benefits once fully operational, providing vital support to people on low incomes, disabled people, and continuing to provide this additional support for carers. David Wallace, Social Security Scotland Chief Executive, said, Social Security Scotland is responsible for making sure that these benefit payments and the further benefits that we will eventually deliver are managed correctly and fairly. We are working hard to make sure that everyone's experience of this new public service is a positive one by putting dignity, fairness and respect at the heart of everything we do. This is an article from Tom Corden. The Herald Scotland. On Friday, the 7th of September 2018. Politics. Vince Cable's long goodbye as Lib Dem leader as Joe Swinson plays down leadership ambition for now. This article by Michael Settle. Vince Cable has announced his long goodbye from the Liberal Democrat leadership as he laid out proposals to turn the party into a big centre-ground movement of moderate, liberal-minded people. The party leader said his intention was to step down after Brexit was resolved or stopped and the process of reforming the party was underway, 
and this could mean a leadership contest as early as summer of 2019. But Jo Swinson, his current deputy, indicated that at present she was not interested in the job as leader and because of the proposed reforms stressed, Vince is carrying on. Talk of the leadership, the Eastern Bartonshire MPs insisted, was for another day. She told the Herald, Look, there's not an election at the moment. I wrote a blog last year for Lib Dem Voice when there was a vacancy on why I don't want to do it and frankly from my perspective in life not a lot has changed since then apart from the fact I have a 10 week old baby so this is not a question for now because we're not at that stage. She went on My priority at the moment is stopping Brexit and Vince is carrying on. Frankly that agenda is a huge amount of stuff to reform the party. Asked if she would like to be her party's leader Miss Swinson replied I'm not going there. However, her colleague Alistair Carmichael, former Scottish Secretary, was more categorical and made clear he was not interested in the leadership role. No, I'm not, declared the MP for Orkney and Shetland, forcefully. In a keynote speech at the National Liberal Club in central London, Sir Vince, who became leader after the 2017 general election and in the wake of Tim Farron's resignation, described reports of his imminent departure as very wide of the mark. The 75-year-old politician made clear he would stay on to steer the party through any Brexit-related turmoil, including a possible snap election. Sir Vince explained he did not want to follow in the footsteps of Liberal Prime Minister William Gladstone, who served into his 80s, or indeed those of Robert Mugabe, who led his party and country until he was 93. Now is not the time for an internal election, declared the Twickenham MP. There's serious work for me and the party to do. Once Brexit is resolved or stopped, that will be the time to conduct a leadership election under the new rules. The core of his speech was about turning the Lib Dems from a party with around 100,000 members to a mass centre-ground movement, appealing to the body of Brexit opponents. The Lib Dems already have 200,000 supporters online. The party leader said two big steps faced the party. First, I want to bring values back into our politics, providing a rallying point for those who are committed to defend liberal democracy, challenge extremes of inequality and barriers to opportunity, uphold our civil liberties, maintain an open, outward-looking country and protect our environment. Secondly, and crucially to making those things happen, I want to work with our party, its governing board and the membership to transform the way we work with people so that we engage more actively with the millions of voters who currently share our values but feel disenfranchised. Citing the Canadian Liberals who rose from being the third party to one of government, Servins said one of his proposals was to widen the membership with a new class of supporters who paid nothing but who signed up to the party's values. These registered supporters would enjoy a range of entitlements, including the right to vote in a leadership contest and to shape the party's campaigning online. Another key proposal was to open up the party leadership to a wider field than MPs by allowing party members to put themselves forward. There's many talented people with proven leadership ability in the professions, the armed forces, the voluntary sector and business and who share our values but who have not pursued a parliamentary career. My intention, therefore, is to ensure the next leader is chosen from the widest possible pool of talent and to put him or her at the helm of a far bigger, more open movement than any previous leader has been. Asked under the new proposed registered supporters scheme what would stop Scottish nationalists from infiltrating the Scottish Lib Dems to push the party towards supporting independence, Sir Vince spoke about preventing a takeover. I used this phrase of opening the windows but not letting the flies in. 
Of course, we'll have to have safeguards, and part of the consultation will be how to make sure that happens without turning a lot of people away who were of value to the party, he added. This article was by Michael Settle. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know someone who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet audio player where our podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF of a Sonata internet radio, please contact your local agent. Please note you will need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of eight, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk. And remember, when setting up the player, ask for Q and Review. Now, back to the main programme. This is an article from The Herald, 11th of September 2018, written by Michael Settle. Tories have stripped workplace rights back to the days of 1930s depression, says John MacDonnell. The Conservative government will today be accused of creating levels of workplace insecurity not seen since the economic depression of 1930s. In this keynote address to the TUC Congress in Manchester, John MacDonnell will lambast the Tories for having stripped back employment rights over generations and will pledge that a Labour government would restore the balance of power in the workplace, which would include a significant extension in trade union rights. The London MP will tell Congress the role of Conservative governments throughout history and being to restrict the restraint for rights and influence of workers to maximise the profit of the companies that so generously fund their party, a straight quad poor quo. The Conservatives try to dress it up as securing some form of balance of power between workers and employers, but few today can argue that the balance hasn't been overwhelmingly tripped against workers. The Shadow Chancellor will say that cumulative legislative assaults on trade union freedoms have seriously weakened the ability to trade unions to negotiate effectively on behalf of their members. The result is that for the first time, shareholders now take a greater share of national income from workers, Mr McDonnell will declare. The massive growth in zero-hour contracts and a big economy have produced a workplace environment of insecurity, not since the 1930s. The decline of collective bargaining has meant that workers also now have little say over the key decisions taken by their employers over the future of their companies. The Labour Fort Venture will go on. Labour's programme of workplace reform will restore the balance between employer and worker with a significant extension of trade union rights, modernising the cooperative governance structures and extend the opportunity for employees to share collectively in the benefits of ownership of their company. Mr MacDonnell will add, Labour's common sense approach will forge a new workplace environment best suited to meeting the challenges of Britain's ongoing low productivity and emerging fourth industrial revolution. In response, Philip Halland highlighted Labour's record of workers, which he said was that when it was last in power, it left more than half a million more people out of work, and noticing how every Labour government had left office with an employment higher than when it started. Under the Conservatives, there are over three million more people in work with a security of regular pay packet. Unemployment is at an all-time low, 
and an host paid have seen for fasted rise in pay for 20 years, thanks to our induction of the national living wage added for Chancellor. Addressing Congress on Monday, United leader Nen McCluskey attacked Labour's MP who were constantly criticising Jeremy Corbyn, urging him to turn their fire on the Tories and adding that anyone not wanting to support the Labour leader should leave and go elsewhere and let the rest of us fight. TUC General Secretary Francis O'Grady accused Theresa May of leading a hear-nothing, see-nothing, do-nothing government and said the Prime Minister could not deliver a Brexit for working people then she should stand down and take your do-nothing government review. Give us a general election and we'll do anything in our power to elect a new Prime Minister who will. And as Congress called for an independent inquiry into the collapse of the Calorian and into the privatisation of public services, Dave Prentice, the General Secretary of Unionson, attacked the latter, saying, While Grenfell will forever be associated with neglect, Calorian will forever be associated with greed. This is an article from Michael Settle. The Herald Scotland. Sport. Recorded on the 13th of September, 2018. Stuart Fisher. I am delighted the SFA are staying at Hamden, but I don't expect the government to foot the upgrade bill. By sports writer Stuart Fisher. I am glad the Scotland national team is staying at Hamden. I would have missed the place. From attending games as a fan there back in the days when we could mix it with teams like Belgium without an inferiority complex, to spending great swathes of my working life there as a journalist. I have generally enjoyed my visits there, so too, sadly, have Scotland's opposition. After the £5 million deal which the SFA, with a little bit of help from their friends Lord Willie Hoffey and Sir Tom Hunter, agreed with Queen's Park on Tuesday to secure the future of this historic old Mount Florida stadium. I am as excited as the next man about the prospect of multi-million pound upgrades which might take the stadium into a new era. Something along the lines of Stuttgart's Gottlieb Dalmar Stadium might just fit the bill. Were those off-derided shallow ends with poor spectator sidelines behind the goals could be handily fixed. It would be great if this could be done in the time for a joint 2030 World Cup bid along with England and Wales. Where I part company know from much of the reaction to Tuesday's announcement is that the logical next step is for shed loads of public money to be diverted into this arrangement. While SFA Chief Executive Ian Maxwell admits the figure involved for such an upgrade would be a chunky number, i.e. north of £50 million. The truth is that neither First Minister Nicola Sturgeon or Prime Minister Theresa May has that kind of cash lying around. And if either of them did, I'm sure they would find multiple better uses for it than upgrading a football stadium, which is often wrongly said not to be fit for purpose. Last week's games proved it actually is in a city where we already have two other 50,000-plus seater stadia. As much as I love the place, Hampton simply has to take its place in the queue. And this would be a long way behind the chunk of public cash, which is no doubt already being earmarked to bring Birmingham's Alexander Stadium up to speed for the 2022 Commonwealth Games. Not to mention even further behind more pressing matters such as ensuring adequate provision of health and social care education, 
housing and transport. Could a case be made to the government for redevelopment on the grounds of the role sport has upon health and well-being? Well, perhaps, but it would have to be a creative one. Making the chairs comfier at Hamden isn't exactly the same as making sure more people get off their backsides and actually play more sport. Will funding for capital projects such as Hamden and Central grants for the running costs of sports bodies tend to come from separate pots? It certainly would be no laughing matter for most minority sports if the funds which keep them ticking over were suddenly siphoned off to give the Scottish national team a souped-up home. It all went wrong, you will hear, when they put in the dreaded running track at Hamden. In fact, a design feature in the shape of the stadium from way back, the track was used a grand total of three times for athletics meetings, all in the summer of 2014. The track since reutilised at other venues. Unlike football, athletics is a sport in Scotland which is punching above its weight on a world scale right now. But there is little carping there about the lack of a venue capable of staging large-scale outdoor athletics meets in Scotland. Ongoing debates with the SRU over the use of Scotston Stadium notwithstanding, or that the UK's bigger events must be squeezed into the short summer lease period when West Ham aren't using the Olympic Stadium. Instead, modest developments are being pursued at Meadowbank and Dundee. While the virtue is made out of their indoor provision by hosting the European Indoor Championships at the Emirates Arena next March, why should they, or any of Scotland's minority sports, suffer as a result of any public handouts for Handum? No, now that they own it, it falls to the SFA to foot the bill for any Hamden upgrade, and creative minds are already working out ways to try to make it pay for itself without passing the bill on to member clubs. The possibilities are out there if someone is bright enough to seize them. Surely the Tartan army couldn't be the first football fans in history to crowdfund an upgrade to their own spectator experience. By sports writer Stuart Fisher. Remember, this programme is just a fraction of what we produce. You can access more daily content online via our website, qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Evening Times and Herald Scotland newspapers, weekly digests of the National Newspaper and weekly full readings of Inside Soap magazine. Now, back to the main programme. Herald, date 12th of September 2018, from the sports section... Justin Rose and Georgia Hall continue to scale the heights by Nick Roger, golf correspondent. Clambering to the peak of of the world golf rankings just about requires breathing apparatus and and a Sherpa, writes Nick Roger. It is a feat achieved by a select few, after all. Since the global rankings were introduced in 1986, only 22 men have made it to the summit. During that time, Tiger Woods held the position in a double Nelson and turned it into a formidable redoubt. In his imperious pomp, Woods led the way for 281 consecutive weeks. When he was knocked off his perch by Lee Westwood in October 2010, Woods had been there for so long that they just about had to send in the the removal men 
and deep cleaners to aid the switchover. How long Justin Rose will sit atop this lofty peak remains to be seen, but having taken 20 years to get there, he'd probably like to savour the years for a while. Fine margins tend to define this game, of course, and Rosie's lead over Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka just about requires a magnifying glance to glimpse the gap. The top three are covered by a mere 0.0544 of a point. For one of the global game's most approachable, erudite and graceful campaigners, the rise to the world number one spot is a fine reward for his drive, his dedication and his unwavering consistency. His performance in July's Open perhaps best illustrated the steely, mental resolve and competitive spirit of Rose. Needing a bird in the last hole to make the halfway cut, the 38-year-old performed the necessaries before closing with a 64 and a 69 over the weekend to finish in a share of second. A professional career that began with 21 miscuts has now reached a significant milestone two decades on. It's a slow burn, and that would be my advice to young kids still trying to make their way, he said as he reflected on the topsy-turvy nature of this fickle old game. I turned pro at 18 and it's taken me 20 odd years to get to world number one. So just dedicate yourself to improving, to learning, to trying to get better. That's what excites me. Obviously winning tournaments and having these moments does too, but the quest to get better is why I wake up in the morning and it gets me out of bed. With Rose at the top of the tree in the men's game, Georgia Hall is looking to plug the St George's Cross in the summit in the women's scene as English golf continues its current period of prosperity. The 22-year-old, who made her big breakthrough with victory in the last month's Rico Women's British Open, is aiming for back-to-back majors at this week's Evian Championship in France. The official women's world rankings were only introduced in 2006, and no English golfer has ever been in the top 10, let alone be the number one. Hall is currently 8th and, inspired by the efforts of Rose, she's keen to keep climbing. It's nice that I'm doing these things and kind of creating history, she said. I congratulated Justin in the morning. He's a great role model to look up to. I said to him that it would be amazing if an England man and woman could be number one. I would obviously like to become world number one, and I'm not a million miles away from that. And that article was by Nick Rogers. The Herald, Monday, September the 10th. Sport, football. McLeish gets real for Albania. Alex McLeish last night dismissed his track record to date as Scotland manager and stated that his reign starts for real with their opening Nations League match against Albania at Hamden this evening. The national team have lost four and won just one of the friendly games they have played since McLeish was appointed boss for a second time back in February. The latest disappointment was a 4 nothing defeat by Russia 2018 semi-finalist Belgium on Friday night that was their heaviest loss at home in 45 years. But the 59-year-old, who inherited the summer tour of South and North America and was forced to field understrength lineups against World Cup-bound Peru and Mexico due to call-offs 
and the unavailability of key personnel is undeterred by the statistics. He has experimented with untried youngsters and different formations since succeeding his former Aberdeen teammate Gordon Strachan in an attempt to unearth players capable of performing at international level. However, McLeish stated that he believes he should be judged on how Scotland performed from now on as he prepared for the first competitive fixture of his seven-month tenure. We're ready to go again, he said. This is it for real now. I can feel it already. I woke up this morning and said to myself, this is where it really begins. We have done some experimenting, looking at different players, and we have a big roster now should we need to call people up. But this is it. The guys have got to bring their best performance level on Monday night. The guys know what it is at stake. They are ready for it. They have created a group chat for themselves. And Andy Robertson, the new Scotland captain, has shown good leadership. He is rallying them. McLeish looks set to persevere with the 3-5-1-1 formation, which allows him to utilise both Robertson of Liverpool and Kieran Tierney of Celtic on the left side that he fielded against Belgium on Friday night despite the defeat. I take examples from other teams and countries, he said. There are players around who are flexible enough to play in specific roles. There is no evidence to say that if we played 4-4-2 against Belgium, we couldn't have been beaten 5 nothing. If we'd been 4-4-2 and got a doing, then people would have been asking if I was thinking about changing the system. I know how it works, but I've got to persevere. One thing I've done throughout my life, in terms of out on the pitch, is that if things aren't right for me, I never give up. I persevere. And I'm going to persevere with this formation. Albania got to the Euros, which is something we haven't done. So there is nobody who can disrespect them. The biggest way we can show our respect is to play at our top level and swarm all over them. We also need to try and get a clean sheet. The Herald Scotland Sport Recorded on the 13th of September 2018 Scott's Boys Club left stunned by six-figure windfall after ex-player's multi-million pound Premier League move by Chief Football Writer Matthew Lindsay Dice Boys Club are celebrating a significant cash windfall following Stuart Armstrong's £7 million move from Celtic to Southampton. Transfers can generate solidarity payments to the clubs who trained the player in their formative years under FIFA regulations. And Dice Boys Club were the beneficiaries of Armstrong's move to Premier League club Southampton, landing a six-figure sum. Dice officials have kept close tabs on Stuart's career since he went professional, but they were caught by surprise by the payment that the midfielder's move to the South Coast generated. Dice Boys Club treasurer Len Nicholl said, We are in a state of shock. We never dreamt how much it would be. We heard news of the transfer just before it was announced, and we knew that there would be a payment, but I nearly dropped the phone when I heard how much it was. 
Although I've seen the bank statement, it really is hard to believe. This money will help sustain the club for years, and we will be able to invest it back into the local community. It is just wonderful that money can flow through to the grassroots to help us produce the next Stuart Armstrong, and more importantly, to help ensure lots of kids in the area can enjoy their football. Former Dice coach Ronnie Cromar said, Stuart's path to the top is an amazing story. We are also proud of what he has achieved so far in his career, and we often talk about him as an example to the young players currently at the club. Through the years, we have had the pleasure to coach other internationalists, such as Graham Shinney and Scott Booth. While Bruce Anderson is another former player who has recently broken through into professional football. Of course, we want to improve them as footballers, but we also want to help shape them into becoming good people. Stuart is a brilliant role model. Not only is he a great player, but he is also an intelligent young man. When he played for us, Stuart often played out on the wing. But as he grew older, he became more of a playmaker. His progress was like a rocket after he moved to Dundee United, no. His development isn't finished. He will progress even further, and we look forward to seeing him back at the club next time he is home. Armstrong said, I owe a lot to the coaches and volunteers at Dice Boys Club. I joined the club when I was 13 years old and spent five happy years there. It was great to meet up with the club committee last week in Edinburgh. They brought some old photographs with them and we reminisced about my time at the club. I'm really proud that the move to Southampton has triggered a payment to the club as it was a great place for me to learn and enjoy my football while I was growing up. They will put the money to good use to help ensure that more and more young players in the area can enjoy their football. By Chief Football Writer, Matthew Lindsay. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Herald Scotland. This weekly Talking Newspaper Digest was a Q&Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review and the producer was Jay Kidd. Q&Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity, number SC018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976.